Welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm. This is the interview show that gets deep in the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. I am your host, Scott Dr. GX Wolfi. If you enjoy this programming, subscribe to the Funkin' Stuff channel on YouTube, which is where Truth and Rhythm lives, and be an advocate by spreading the word among fellow funk, jazz, and R&B music lovers. Join Truth and Rhythm's membership program through Patreon. You can also submit a direct donation to the cause anytime at funkinstuff.net. At that site, you can also purchase the book, Everything's on the One, The First Guide of Funk. Shop for official Truth and Rhythm and Funkin' Stuff merchandise and use the Amazon links for all of your online purchases, which allocates a percentage to this show. For those of you who go the extra step in supporting the show, you have my heartfelt gratitude for allowing us to continue to shine the light on those special artists whose quest is to find truth in rhythm. It is an honor to welcome to the Truth and Rhythm Mothership legendary jazz fusion drummer, producer, composer, arranger, and band leader, Billy Cobham. Milestones of his early career included positions with Miles Davis's band and the Mahavishnu Orchestra, as well as dozens of recordings and shows with a who's who of jazz greats. He launched a prolific solo career in 1973 with the landmark fusion album Spectrum and has released dozens of LPs while contributing to hundreds of other artists' work during an astonishing 50-plus year career. His unique combination of power, precision, and speed has amazed millions and influenced legions of drummers, and he continues to perform today. Billy, it's a thrill to have you. How are you? Well, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm I'm quite honored to be here on your show, and uh, I'm doing pretty good. Uh, just celebrated uh, number seventy nine on the sixteenth of May, and I survived it. So I think I'm doing okay. <laughs> well, you look well, you sound well, and you're still playing. So God bless, you know. Yeah, thank you, thank you very much. So you're overseas from where I am right now. Why don't you tell everybody where you are? Uh, I'm I'm in Bern, Switzerland, and uh, have lived there now for about 44 years uh, in in Switzerland, between Zurich and Bern. Bern is about 20 years now, and uh, it's uh, it's been the land of of, of education. Uh, the reason why I came was because I was curious as to why what what the alternatives were were uh, in terms of performances and, and uh, teaching and work, oh, generally speaking, for, for an artist, of, um, I should say of myself, someone who was uh, not totally accomplished. I was looking to, to learn more, actually going in, in, into the history of a performance of my uh, predecessors to understand 
what they were doing that and and so it would make my my presence uh or my presentations more meaningful because i feel that you know in order to to play well you need to have that area in your mind of history um when you when you work with uh with anyone uh and you, they say okay play a solo you're playing alone but you're not you're playing with the spirits of all of those who came before you if you understand what they did when they were around and how that relates to what you do in the present then it, it means the future is going to have and uh uh some kind of meaning and that's always been my my presence honoring the legacy so important and you know that's why we're here today to make sure your legacy is is preserved as well so uh thank you for doing this billy i appreciate it Mm -hmm. so i know you started drums very young born in panama grew up in brooklyn area which is where my folks are from actually let's uh, die yeah Uh, yeah (laughs) yeah east new york (laughs) <laughs> how, how and when, you know, obviously you were drawn to the drums early, but at what point was there a turning point where you uh, decided uh, this is actually what I'm going to pursue as my life's calling? Yeah, uh, I don't think I was more than about oh, six or seven, but I hung out with a group of kids that were straight out of uh, the, how can I put it, the, um, uh, there was a there was a uh, a TV show, and I'm trying to I, I'm trying to remember the name of them. There was such a spanking our spanking our gang, all of the our gang, little rascals. Yeah, it was kind of like that around in in as we say around our way um, back then. And of course, being the little guy, no one really listened to me very much. Everybody else was bigger than me, taller and they were always chatting and I was just listening, trying to get inside and getting inside the cracks. But uh, of the conversations. And so one day it came to the head. This is in between. This is when you're out of school, summertime, there's nothing to do on uh, on the block except to sit down and talk until it gets too hot to be outside in Brooklyn around in, in the middle of July back then. And uh, everybody goes home because there's nothing else to talk about. We're too tired to do anything else. But we, before we go, it's like, what do you want to be when you grow up? And, and everybody points and points and points and points. And finally, they get around to the little guy, which is me, and they said, uh, yeah, what do you want to be? And I said, I want to be a musician. They said, you can't play anything. And now we get into, oh, yes, I can. Oh, no, you can't. Oh, yes, I can. Yes, I can. Yes, I can. Until finally, they'll show us. So all that we had to play, I had on, had to play on was my father's 1952. Yeah, it was a 1952 Chrysler, and it was not new. So that would mean maybe it was a two-year-old car. So that was 1954. So I'm just 10, 10 years old, not six. And I start to play this 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 Latin, uh, what I call m- m- my version of a mambo or something like that, with as if I were a conguero. And they all tried to do it the same way, and they couldn't do it. 
And it made me feel even bigger because I had something they didn't have. And it never left me. I just decided, I think I found a home. And here I am. Wow. And um, I know that you ended up going to the Army. And um, yep. I think that really helped with your regimentation and your discipline and, and the craft, right? Absolutely. And, pro and the re only reason why I got into the United States Army band was because of my uh, my preparations prior to that, which brought me into... Now, you, would, you might have heard of this group. It's called... The Crown of Carolina. It's a marching, it's a drum and bugle corps. If you haven't, I highly recommend you look it up on Google. They are amazing. Um, the arrangements are off the hook. Uh, it's a it's a it's a, a competitive competitive marching and maneuvering corps. And they play every conceivable uh kind of rudiment you could ever want, but musically, not robotically. They've taken it and 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 become part of it. And they made it part of their music, how they express themselves on on the in percussion. They also have a percussion battery and it's like a lot of marching bands you're seeing. But these not just marching down the street, they do a between 15 and 20 minute uh presentation. It's 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 drum and bugle corps, uh, synchronized, synchronous mute marching combined with, with uh, opera, with ballet. I mean, it's so much going on at the same time. And they're playing very complex, harmonically, melodically, mu melodic music at the same time. And it's, uh, they're just one of many that, that, that happened. And I happened to be in one of those drum corps when I was uh, 16, 17 years old, uh, through to the year that I, I was uh, brought into the United States Army. Uh, and so I specialized in, in that, that part of it. So that was one section of the Army I had to do. And I, and I excelled in it. So I, I was at the Naval, the Naval School of Music, which at that time it was what it was called in, in Scope, which was in Virginia. And uh, that's where I met Grover Washington, um, Cecil Bridgewater, uh, see who else was there with me, John Charles, uh, Roger Glenn, uh, whose father was the great Tyree Glenn trombonist with, with Louis Armstrong. And uh, we all were in the, were in the army bands, different army bands, and then we came together. I was doing a lot of teaching there at the same time, because they needed teachers, and I even without stripes, I, I had, and I wouldn't even, I never got a chance to go to college. I was already working and teaching because I did was an instructor in drum corps, so there was a lot of stuff like that happening. Plus, I had to play in big bands. I was already in the studios before I went to the army, so I, I brought a lot of information just in terms of street smarts and, and things like that um, to to the to the army. And gave me a chance to, to to test and check out a lot of things. I was writing, taking trend, um, music, which I think they might still have um, to this day. They do have a file on me there. Uh, I took uh, the West Side Story Buddy Rich album and transposed it 
for drum set. A lot of guys had to take that test to get in. I wish them luck. There you go. It's a Billy's curse. (laughs) Don't tell anybody. Anyway, um, so it was that. Um, And, you know, I just kept kept my my head into music from that point on. At the School of Performing Arts, where I went to school, it's a high school. It was on the New York City College campus. It's now called Friarello LaGuardia School for the Performing Arts in Lincoln Center. But there used to be two schools, LaGuardia School uh, up in Harlem, which is where I went, and there was one down in mid, Midtown Manhattan that took also a lot, of, a, a lot of young artists who danced uh, and sang more. Um, whereas uptown, it was singers, painters, uh, I mean, visual artists and, and instrumentalists. And so for the symphony. And so we got a chance to do a lot of things for the city uh, youth orchestra and stuff like that. It's a four-year program. And you had to have a, 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 not only an audition, but a recommendation from a professional to get in, things like this. And since New York was why they call it the Apple, so many musicians there that were highly, Miles Davis amongst them all, people like that, or Roy Haynes and, I happen to know some, and they 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 supported me in getting in, uh, my mom and I, to get get into the place. Um, who 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 were if I could jump in, Billy? Who who were a couple of your biggest influences? So was it like Betty Rich and some other, uh, you know? No, silver, um, one of my biggest my biggest interest uh, a support I'm sorry, interest uh, uh, was Sonny Payne. Who was a, a drummer who played with Count Basie's band? Um, again, I highly recommend to everybody check out Google, check out Sonny Payne. Um, if you don't know, you should know. You'll see. Um, he wasn't a Buddy Rich, but he was. He was. He was himself, and that was more because there was already a Buddy Rich. There's already a Lily Belson, and. Again, we come back to history. Why were these guys like that? What did they do that was so special? Uh, that was made them unique, made them stand out. It was their their desperation to earn a living, to survive, uh, in a way that is not a not necessary, at least not shown often today. Uh, you got you get yourself a. AC plug and you plug something in, you throw in a couple of records on top, you scratch them up or whatever. Uh, you come up with some ideas that way. I'm not putting that down. But then when that same person comes to me in a, in a, in a course of a limited course for maybe four or five weeks and asks me to teach him or her how to play uh, like they did, quote unquote, back in the day, it's very, very difficult for me to to really find a handle for them to grab musically since they have no understanding of how everything worked back in the day. They only know about right now and they're only interested really in what happens right now because what they're trying to do 
is to come up with a different combination of gimmicks that will give them a chance to get the next project next, tomorrow or the next day, and then throw that out and try something else. Not that much of a change from the past, except that all we had back in the day as drummers were drumsticks, drums um, to play on, and, 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 and the knowledge of what we're going to play is going to represent what was played before. Nothing new. The only, the only thing new about what we're playing is us, because we weren't there before. But every, we're, we're brand new to this earth. So we're going to play and interpret how Max Roach and Elvin Jones and all those people played, but only to a certain degree. And then we're naturally going to go off on a tangent on our own. That's only part of what we'd have to do when we play. We have to find out, find a way to combine all of those ideas that we're, we're kind of mildly stealing from, which is nothing wrong with it because they got nothing else to take them and turn them into something that represents us really. And the first one you have to convince is yourself. So there you go. Back then, Billy, were you uh, pretty much exclusively dialed into jazz, or were you also taking in what was happening in rock? It was happening maybe in R and B. Uh, what were you dialed into? What were you listening to back then in the early days? Back then, there was something called pop, which there is now, but it's a little bit different. A pop artist. Let's take one. Frank Sinatra was a pop artist with his own radios. Uh, radio station because he had so many hits that that's all they played was him um that's a big salute it wasn't that they were being biased uh on purpose it's just that he sold really well to the audience and then another hit uh group would be count basie's band pop radio Count Basie's band, Pop Radio, Duke Ellington, Pop Radio, Stan Kenton. All these things were happening back then because that's who the, the population was in one, one respect. So you hear, you heard them on AM radio, okay? FM was just in its infancy back then. And then you have, uh, and it sounded better, by the way, than, than AM had broader bands and, oh, it was beautiful sound. Well, let's not get started on that. But anyway, you know, so you had that kind of situation. Um, I listened to a lot of that because my father was a, a, a pianist uh, as a hobbyist. My father was actually a, mechan a, 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 a math mathematician. Um, and so this was something he did as, oh, by the way, kind of thing. Yeah, we never had a piano in the house. Yet he played piano and he never studied piano. He just knew how to play the piano. Just one of those things. So kind of blessing, kind of curse. I don't know. But uh, it, it helped to get a few more bucks in the house. Uh, so he listened to all these musicians, the Gillespie's and all of that was common every day, seven days a week. Not a day off. And not loud, just just always in the house. You get that kind of stuff going on through the house all the time. Something's going to stick. 
you know, and uh, for me, it was uh, some of the best years of my life. Never, never really knowing who it was, but remembering all the songs that they performed over the radio or on records, which my, my parents had. We listened to that. We listened to Latin music a lot because we're from Panama. So, of course, the whole Latin thing was pretty strong. Rock and roll, no. No. There are, it wasn't, and the, the beauty of it was I just wasn't interested. I heard, I heard more than the blues. Um, coming from from a lot of artists, a lot of chord changes, and and, and so I I the the immersion I was immersed. I I in, was uh, put into the forms of of ABA forms. I mean, the, all of this kind of stuff. We, we, you, I, I could understand how one section led to the other, how, how music could be created as an arrangement naturally, just because I heard it all the time. And it just made sense if it, uh, unless you had to go someplace else for some reason, unless I, I had to force it that way, I had a basic form to deal with in my mind. And so that's how I play today. Again, from the position of of uh, creating form, uh, choosing the notes of, uh, on the drum that will connect uh, the ideas that I that I create within my head before I play them on the instrument. And your first studio experience recording was that with George Benson or Horace Silver or what was that? That was with that was with George Benson. No, no, it was not. It was the first studio. No, it was Horace Silver, uh, Serenade to a Soul Sister. Yeah, and I showed them both being 1968, so I wasn't sure which came first. Yeah, it would be Serenade to a Soul Sister. It was probably my first professional recording. Yeah. Do you remember that experience? Were you intimidated? Were you just gung-ho, you know? Um, I was not intimidated at all never been intimidated about playing music with anybody um i've always wanted to focus on the educational side uh accessing their ideas trying to understand how i could play with them uh to enhance what they were the were offering and make it make it stronger from a rhythmic uh, perspective always um, never was the last time i was afraid to be on stage with anybody was when i had to do i think it was christmas carol dickens when i was about six it was fun. i never got the words out i was just too afraid but aside from that no that's why i, I never sing <laughs> i can't get that together I go duh, but the drums became my my wall, my my um, my environment that I they could hide me sort of, and I could play my organ, if you will. That's what I felt like J.S. Bach. That's right. That's pretty much how I felt. I imagine you had to learn a bit, you know, of of the difference of 
recreating the sounds you wanted in a studio environment versus the stage? All of that. Every day um, was a learning experience. Came over quite a long time, maybe 60 plus years. Yeah. What was your first impression meeting Miles Davis? What were those circumstances like? <laughs> well, um, meeting him, I was I was playing in a band either with Junior Mans or Charlie Mingus at um, at the top of the Village Gate, and downstairs was the Miles Davis Quintet with. Jack DeJanet, Chick Corea, Dave Holland, and uh, yeah, I think, and Wade Shorter. And in a break, Jack came up and said to me that he wanted to know if I wanted to, if I would be interested to play with Miles. And first I thought he was just winding me up. And I uh, said, oh, sure, man, you know. And then I saw he was serious. He said, you serious? He said, yeah. I said, okay. He said, okay, he's, he's gonna, I'm going to tell him that you're into it because I already told him I'm leaving. And he was going to do something with Charles Lloyd, I think, and Keith Jarrett or something. And so I said, I wasn't going anywhere because I had three more sets to play. Um, so he, he said, Miles will come in the audience and listen to you, what, what you're doing. And he'll probably give you a call. And sure enough, a couple of days later, my girlfriend was very, very upset because some guy on the phone couldn't sound, he was talking like he had marbles in his mouth. He couldn't make his mouth clear. And... Uh, and I said, marbles in his mouth. Now the alarm bells are going on in my head. I mean, did, he, did he speak up? She said, he kept whispering. I said, okay, give me the phone. <laughs> Quick. Um, Paul, this Billy Cobbs. Yeah. Um, CBS, 10 o'clock, Studio G tomorrow morning. I hung up on me. And the rest is history. Did it, how long did it take before you felt um, at home and comfortable with him on stage? I never played with him on stage. Oh, I played with okay. him in the studio. In the studio then? Mm -hmm. uh, from the very first note, I had no problem. The only actually, I had one problem. It became a problem when he said to me on one of those sessions, we had a little rehearsal. He said, you're playing something. I like that. Remember that tomorrow you got to play it. I said, he said, right? And I went, uh-huh. Yeah, that thing's long gone. I couldn't remember what I had done. And I went, oh, God. So all night I'm thinking, what did I play? What did I play? Get into the studio. Everything's going fine. Everything's going fine. He said, Billy, you had that thing. I want you to play that now. I said, okay. And I started playing something. He said, no, that's not what it was, but I like that. Play that. And I wonder. 
covered yourself. <laughs> Good thing you had such an arsenal of great stuff to go to. Um, that I band, didn't I didn't know <laughs> that that band with Miles when you were there. Though you were playing with people like Herbie and uh, mm-hmm. Michael Henderson, right? Yeah, yeah. I was very blessed. You know, to this day, I'm very blessed with the people that I've been able to perform with all the way to the, to last weekend. You know, it's just been beautiful. If I had to do it again, I don't know how I could change it. You know, mistakes and all. <laughs> Just that's the way you learn. Now, did you play on Bitches Brew or not? Because I'm a little confused with Lenny White. I, I think he did something related to Bitches Brew. Lenny White was was a major major force on that record. I thought from the last I heard, I, I thought that Jack had something to do with it at some point. Lenny, mostly, if I'm not mistaken. This is just from my perspective. We played, we made in about a year, I'm man, or even less. I recorded so much music with Miles in, in Columbia at Columbia. I'm not sure what I'm on. I just know that there's a box set that says that I'm on I'm on about six or seven records. There's there may be one a track of me on something, but most of it I had no idea. There were no titles. For anything, music that was written was very, very, very sparse. We played more what we felt and heard. So I think I think whatever Lenny says would one would have to go along with. I I know I was on a, I, the only record I know I'm on is a freak of nature. It was something that was not supposed to happen. And that's called Jack Johnson. The reason why that happened, why I know that, is because we rehearsed something completely different from what we played on that record. How that music came to be on that record was just based on the fact that kids, as we were back then, just fidgety. We're here, we want to play. We're here, we want to play. And it's like say mom or dad said, sit here, be quiet, don't move. You sit there. And then all of a sudden, you know, you start to go. Because you're a kid and you got you thinking about things. And the same thing happened there. Um, John McLaughlin had some ideas in his head. And Miles said, I'm going to the studio. Just, I have to go in the control room for me. Don't play. Don't play. Um, I'll be right. And, and he just went into So we're sitting there, five minutes, maybe not even that. John goes, just, and um, Michael Henderson, he hears it. Lightly. Now they've got this Groove. And I'm just sitting there and just saying, man, it's Steve Grossman's just standing, he's not doing anything. And and I'm trying to hang with Steve and nothing. But all of a sudden my hands start moving. And they're playing. And all of a sudden we've got this shuffle. And it's growing and it's growing and it's growing. Miles comes out and says, I told you not to play in between takes. 
everybody stopped. Now I'm thinking like, oh God, I mean, I just lost my, I lost the account. Everything's through the window. You know, you're going to tell us to get out, get out. No, it goes back inside control room. They're still talking. McLaughlin smiling now, because now it's a game. Now it's a game. Starts again. And it starts to build again. It's against Mossad. And it comes out and he, he's trying to stop it. Now John thinks it's gay. And he's starting to smile because, you know, you know, man, I can't, we got to keep playing. Mossad goes inside. John starts playing again. And you know that we end up like, it was just, just sitting there. And all of a sudden, the hands started moving and started playing. We got to a point where it was grooving so heavy that that's what you have in the record right now. Hmm. And Miles just came out and said to, to Tio Mateo, red button, was record. Um, what was supposed to be a three-hour session was done in a half an hour. And uh, so we got it. I don't need any more. And that's the only record that I know I for sure played on. It's something how it came together. Uh, and, Very and, organic. Very organic. And you and John uh, ended up leaving for uh, the Mahavishnu Orchestra. Um, how did that kind of come together? Did you initiate it to John or what? How did you guys come to do that? Um, I'd worked with John on. Uh, a, well, how'd that work? I was working with John from time to time on a recording session or to some, someone, someone else's sessions. And he came to me and asked me if I would help him out with some music that was uh, that he was working on. We could just go into a, a rehearsal room, drums and guitar, and uh, pull together some things that he had in mind, some ideas. And I wasn't working a whole lot. So, of course, it was back in the day where, you know, you, everything was designed to just pick up and go as quickly as you can. So I had a drum set that each, you know, I had a 20-inch bass drum with a 14-inch bass, a 16-inch tom-tom that went inside of it, all single-headed, and then a 14, uh, single, yeah, 16, uh, a 13 went through inside the 16, and and, and a 10 went inside the, the 13, and um, that was in one one case and um, soft case. And then in the other hand, I had a, a trap case with cymbals and snare drum and stands and seat. And I could get on the New York City surface bus line for 20 cents, 25 cents, and kind of cover any place I wanted from Harlem all the way down in the village to make a recording session. And uh, so these days, those days was a lot of work was being done in semi-condemned buildings around uh, East Broadway, down in Soho. And so we went to, we would go down to a place called uh, Megaphone, I think it was called, and sit down and play, just, just the two of us. Little did I know that I was playing myself into a situation that uh, would end up being the Mahavishnu Orchestra. Hmm. Now, I asked some of my drummer friends and guys you would know, um, just to throw some questions at me that I would include, because I told him I was talking to you. 
one of them was um, around that period, you know, how did you come up with, and this is their quote, uh, that like sort of big bombastic style with the fast Tom rolls and the left-handed lead. Mm. <laughs> um, one chocolate chip cookie. Um, what I heard, it just was the way the music was, the way I interpreted what he was playing. I heard that, that, that approach. I developed that approach kind of, kind of naturally. We kept playing together. And I kept hearing kind of things that, uh, ideas kept coming to my mind. And I was given carte blanche as to play within the, 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 um, the template that he offered, which is a, it was a very disciplined template. Tempo was very important. Timing was very important. And understanding how to phrase was very important. Okay. If you could play, I mean, I saw odd meters, as they call it, as it was called, seven and five, nine, 10, 13, as being phrases. It continued to go come back round, and I could hear the the that they were. It was definitely this would happen. So I could play inside that phrase. Two things that drummers tend to not focus on upon enough. One is playing in triplets. Another is playing slowly. You can always play very fast. And it's, of course, the visual thing is off the hook. Okay, you may get an Academy Award, but if you're playing slow, but in tempo, the only people who are going to recognize you for that are the people who are playing with you because it's very difficult to play ballads and to play them with feeling. Because again, artists tend to protect themselves. They don't want to show who they really are through the music. They're concerned that they're, they're, they're opening up themselves to ridicule. Easier said than done. It's just the way we are, we're, we're, we're made up. And that happens in balance. If you really, you want to hear ballads played, listen to Bill Evans, the pianist. Um, some of the, the ballads, um, Miles, of course. Um, it, is, it is coming from a, a, a space in their history, in their timeline, where they're sharing something that's so special to them. Sometimes in ballad, there's a lot of pain, and it comes out slowly that way. And when you play odd meters, you want to be able to use the the that that the, the the use of duple patterns or triple patterns and control them. That means you have to have control over every limb in, on your body. 
that control comes from the computer called your brain. If you don't keep them balanced, if you're not, if your your left leg is your weak leg and it's not trained at least two thirds as well as your right leg, you're going to be out of sync. So you have to practice them. These are things that are normally overlooked by drummers because they're looking to look good, not to sound good, not to be consistent. I'm really thankful for that because it means I get more work. So that's the whole objective. Keep doing that. It's good. Did um did you always have a mind to uh, do a solo career? And uh, how did you uh, get that first uh, deal that uh, you know led to Spectrum? Okay, no, I, I thought that I was going to be a studio musician. That's when I went to music in our high school. I I was preparing myself for, to 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 play anything from Ringling Brothers, Barnum and Bailey Circus, you know, as 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 a job, right straight through doing jingles and commercials for, for whomever, craft foods or whatever, you know, airlines to playing near Philharmonic and being able to cover the bases. As a sub, I, I didn't know if I wanted, the, I didn't know if I wanted to have a the chair because that bogged me down. I love just playing music. And another thing I didn't want to do was teach because I felt it bogged me down. It meant that I had to be, you know, it's like a nine to five. And, and that's not, that wasn't going to get me in what I really felt I could accomplish. So I was, I was, I was kind of really happy with being a musical Ronin. You know, I just wanted to play, play the Latin thing, play, go out and play that, and then turn around and come back in and play with Joe Cocker, you know, and, and, and enjoy myself, you know. Because I knew where he was coming from, I could understand, you know, the grooves. I mean, it, it, that was what was happening for me. So I fit well into Cree Taylor's plans uh, at CTI and Verb. But the music kept changing. And uh, we did the Brazilian thing and we did straight ahead stuff. And I was with a, for me, the, the greatest rhythm sections uh, uh, the players in the world. I had piano players, Keith Jarrett, Herbie Hancock, Bob James, Roland Hanna. Um, just there alone, and, I, and there are more, and I can't remember the names. Then my partner in percussion would be Ayato Morera, or someone like this. Um, let's see, bass Ron Carter, of course, uh, primarily. And um, that rhythm section is stand up to anybody. Yeah, Sebesky is the arranger and piano, Imediadado. Uh, all these different things that come in my way. And all I have to do is lay it down. That's all. And just, you know, not only that, first I have to be there on time. And on time doesn't mean when the session starts. On time means for the drummer an hour before the session starts so that you could play when the session starts, you know. Another way drummers have to keep time, yeah. In a, in, in a very, very important way, you know, you have to keep time to get to the studio, to set everything up so that you can be in time with what's happening. So take this off. Man. Time to get comfortable. I'm good. 
<laughs> and uh, so these are all lessons learned, not by people telling me, but by the actions of people around me who do it. And, or, and when it doesn't happen, all of a sudden, the group, the thing is like, well, man, what are, you, what are you here so late for? You know, the session starts in 15 minutes, but you know, you're putting a, trying to put a bass drum up. You're not going to be ready in 15 minutes. The words are very few. It's the action that counts. When the, call, when the phones don't ring anymore, then you have to ask yourself why. What is it that you did not do that was necessary to make it? Oh, you may have played very well on those sessions, but how about the one that's coming up? Can they? Can you be trusted to play on that if you're not going to be in time? There's much more to this great Truth and Rhythm interview. Just continue on to the next part of the episode. Also, be sure to subscribe to this channel. If you've already done so, please share it with friends. And become a member by joining Truth and Rhythm on Patreon or consider donating at funkinstuff.net. Thank you very much.